Our study this morning is in 2 Kings chapter 13, so let's take our Bibles and turn there. This is kind of an unusual passage, um, not only because of what happens here with Joash, but because at first glance, it really doesn't seem to have a whole lot of application to our lives. You know, when we watch what has um, transpired over the last 48 hours from the inauguration to the sometimes violent and definitely vulgar protests uh, that have taken place, it's kind of hard to see how a king shooting arrows into the ground has a lot of relevance for us, how that helps us make sense of what's going on, but how many know that the obscure parts of the Bible often have the most significance? I love to study the texts that are kind of out of the way because it makes us really seek the Lord for his wisdom and it really gives us the impetus to look more carefully at what the text is teaching us and what the Spirit is saying to us. So when you're reading or studying the Bible and it seems like um, it doesn't really connect to your life in 2017, take that extra time to pray and keep digging into the text until you've mind the truth that's there. Actually, as I was finishing my study last night, it hit me in a really fresh way um, just how relevant 2 Kings 13 is to our country this morning, especially in light of kind of the confusion and, and the, the selfishness that we've seen on display. And I'm not being political this morning, I'm not intending to talk about that, but our, our country is uniquely polarized, isn't it? I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it like this before. And both sides are convinced that if the nation was just in the right hands, meaning their political party and their political philosophy, um, that everything would be fine. Each is convinced that the other side is absolutely wrong. And from a moral standpoint, there, there is some merit to that. If you've watched and listened to the crudeness of some of the speakers, um, especially those in Hollywood, aren't you so done with Hollywood right now? Aren't you just so I'm, so, I'm so done with the entertainment industry or the so-called entertainment industry. As you've listened to that, I hope you've understood and I've understood again that this is a spiritual issue. I was so encouraged during the inauguration how many times the name Jesus Christ was prayed to. How many times the name Jesus Christ was praised. But uh, that just means that the battle's about to really begin. And the enemy's going to become much more uh, vocal, much more volatile in stirring up any opposition to biblical-based policy. So these convoluted issues of gay marriage, which is an oxymoron, and gender identity and abortion, those are going to be the defining points in the days ahead, simply because the Bible teaches about them. The enemy hates the Bible. He hates the Word of God, so, so he's going to be the one that's fighting anything that is directed toward honoring the Word of God. That's where, that's where the battle is going to be. It's not going to be personalities. It's not going to be Twitter accounts. It's going to be biblical-based policy. And the problem this morning, and this is leading into the text, is not who is leading, it's who's not leading. That's the real issue in our country this morning, and, and that's what 2 Kings 13 is about. Not just for our nation, because there will be application to our country, but also for our individual lives and for our church. When each one is in the right hands, there is blessing, and there is strength, and there is peace. But when each one is not in the right hands, there is discipline, and weakness, and division, and turmoil. 
So let's see how this passage this morning uh, addresses that and what the Lord wants to teach you and me this morning and teach our church this morning as we continue to move forward. 2 Kings 13, I hope you're there, start in verse 14. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elijah said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. For you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And he said, verse 18, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Now, when you get to the start of the passage of verse 14, it seems like that everything's buddy-buddy with Joash and Elisha, and they've had a long-standing positive relationship, but that's actually not the case. We need to understand a little bit of background about Joash um, and his spiritual condition, because he was a king of Israel, and after Solomon, none of the kings of Israel was considered good. In fact, the Bible calls each of them evil. Now, if you look back at verse 11, you see that Joash's character is described by God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now, the fact that Jeroboam is mentioned there is a a key clue because other than Ahab, there were few kings of Israel that were more evil than Jeroboam. And the text says that Joash not only didn't turn away from Jeroboam's sins, but he continued to make Israel to sin. But the last phrase there in verse 11 is the one that's really key. It shows how deeply rooted sin was in Joash's heart. It says that he walked in those sins. The literal meaning there in the Hebrew is that it was his way of life. So Joash is not a good guy, he's not a righteous guy, he's not a friend of Israel, he's not a friend of Elisha, he's not a friend of God. He's an evil man who promoted sin, promoted the destruction of the nation because of sin, and made it his personal lifestyle. He's not just worldly or, or kind of spiritual, he, he is in complete spiritual rebellion to God. And he's taking an active role in influencing other people to rebel against God. Now, why do I spend a minute and a half on that? I spend a minute and a half on that because when we get to verse 14, it gives us context. Elisha's sick. It's the illness that is going to be the one that's going to take his life. And Joash decides that he's going to come visit him. Now, up to that point, any relationship between the kings of Israel and the prophets of Israel, at this point, Elijah and Elisha, has been, uh, shall we say, not very good. The kings have resented the message of the prophets. They've turned against God. They've built uh, idols to Baal. They've, they've had um, a, a removal of God from society. So it's really been a problem. Uh, there, there's not 
any sense really of the Word of God or the Spirit of God or, or any sense of following God at this point. So Joash is like the rest. He has no relationship with the Lord. He has no relationship with Elisha, either civil or spiritual. So it's a little odd that when Elisha suddenly gets sick, that Joash is suddenly concerned. You would think he'd want him to go away, right? Finally, let's get rid of that prophet. What's even stranger when you look at the text is that when Joash comes to visit Elisha, that, that he sees how sick he is, and he starts to weep. That's what the text says. He starts to weep, and then in verse 13, he quotes this kind of strange phrase, my father, my father. That's, a, that's an actual quote of when Elijah went to heaven, and Elisha was standing there, and he said, I'd like a double portion of your blessing, Elijah. Elijah says, that's fine, but the, but the qualification is, you've got to see me when I go, because God's going to take me away. Elijah never died. So the chariot of fire comes down and picks up Elijah, and Elijah goes up into heaven, and Elisha's standing there, and he cries out, if you look back at 13, this phrase that, Eli- that Joash now says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Now why the sudden interest? Why does he quote Elisha when Elisha's done nothing but speak truth and confront the the disobedience of Israel and the disobedience of Joash, why why suddenly does Joash care? Now, I think there are three possible options. Let me give them to you very quickly. The first option is that Joash is using some kind of uh, insincere emotional leverage looking for some kind of a pardon. I don't think that's the case. The scripture doesn't mention anything about that, but, but maybe he's trying to be kind of secretly manipulative, and he's crying crocodile tears and showing that he cares, but he, he doesn't really. Maybe he's hoping Elisha will help him out a little bit. So that's one option. Second option, I think, would be that Joash actually felt some guilt. Maybe he's kind of starting to feel sorry about his rebellion, and he realizes that Elisha's going away, and there's some sort of repentance here. That's also possible, based on the fact that the Lord helps him here. But, but there's nothing in the text about it. The Spirit never mentions it. And actually, at the end of the chapter, chapter 14, Joash is going to raid Jerusalem and defeat Judah and steal all the gold and silver out of the temple. So I don't think that's probably what it is. So that leaves option three. Option three would be that Joash is feeling sadness that the one spiritual influence of the nation is leaving. And there's nobody behind him. It's going to be 57 years before there's another prophet to Israel after Elisha. And that prophet's going to be Jonah. And God's going to send Jonah to Nineveh. So maybe Joash is feeling, uh uh-oh, now there's nobody to preach. Now there's nobody to talk about the, the word of the Lord, even though we've kind of ignored it and rebelled against it, and I haven't anything to do with God. Maybe, maybe now this is a problem because Elisha's about to die. And maybe he's really scared that there's not going to be a pastor for the nation. Of course, he hasn't shown any inclination to follow the Lord before. In fact, his actions are just the opposite. So, so why does he care now that the voice of the Lord is dying? I, I seem to get the sense, and maybe I pray this is right, that, that he feels that this is the last spiritual hope for an apostate nation, and he doesn't know what to do next. Now, here's the problem. Problem is, Joash could have repented, and he could have sought the Lord, and he could have been the spiritual influence. But he kept waiting for somebody else. 
This is a very important spiritual principle for every one of us. I want to encourage you to write it down because we're going to give you a couple principles this morning. And this one, I think, is, is very, very important, especially within the Christian culture in America in 2017. The principle is this. Instead of looking for others to influence people for the Lord, be the one who leads the way. Instead of waiting for somebody else to step up and somebody else to be the one that'll speak truth and somebody else to be the one that'll influence the people around you for Christ, instead, you be the one and I be the one. Whatever your family situation is, whatever your social circle is like, whatever your work is like, you are the one and I am the one that the Lord has put in that position to speak truth in love and to show the mercy of Christ and to model holiness. We can say, well, a pastor needs to do it, and a missionary needs to do it, or that person's really good at sharing their faith, and, and I'm just not. Listen, that it's, it's, it's easy to suffer from spiritual paralysis. Because we say, well, I don't, I don't feel prepared, or, or I, I'm insecure, or I don't want to intrude on other people's lives and, and start talking about God because we know how you know, much society hates God. And, 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 and I don't know, maybe somebody else will just come along. Here's the thing. If you and I are unprepared, then we need to study to show ourselves approved. If you and I are insecure, then we need to know that everybody's insecure. I'm insecure this morning, standing up before you teaching the word of God. But we need to ask the Lord to help us. And if you feel like you're being intrusive, know that people are looking for truth this morning. They are looking for somebody to give them hope. They are looking for somebody to give them answers about the mess that we are in. They are certainly not getting that from the nasty celebrities. And if you and I feel like someone else is going to step up, then we need to understand that the Lord has put us here and the fields are white and the laborers are few and it's time to pray to the Lord of the harvest and get out there. If the real problem is sin, then we know what to do with that first. Because as Joash shows here, we just can't play with the Lord. There's no finessing your spiritual walk. There's no negotiating your spiritual walk. You can't be serious, and I can't be serious about the Lord one minute and praising our hand, uh, the Lord and lifting our hands and closing our eyes and, and, and saying, Hallelujah, Lord. We can't do that in one breath, and then the other breath just want to do whatever we want. That's the definition of hypocrisy. The Greek word for hypocrisy is the mask that you see in drama. One's happy and one's sad. That, that's what hypocrisy is. It's playing one part and then playing another part. And that may fool everybody because man look at the outward appearance. But the Lord knows our hearts. So Joash is an example of the fact that we can't wait for somebody else to influence people. It has to be us. Now despite all of that, the Lord was still willing to be merciful to Joash. And he was still willing to help the nation despite their resistance. And that just shows what, what God does next shows the extensive measure of his grace. This table this morning shows the extensive measure of God's grace, that he is willing to save us and offer us mercy and help us even when we're fighting against him. And we know that's true because Jesus never would have come here if it wasn't for God's mercy. Why would Christ do that? 
Why would he endure the pain and the shame of the cross? Why would he suffer and die on our behalf if God didn't love us? Ephesians 2 says God is rich in mercy. He's willing to pour out his mercy on your life. If you're in rebellion against him this morning, if your heart is hardened against him, if there's sin in your life that you will not let go, listen, God is willing to pour out his mercy on you, but you have to give yourself to him. And whether Joe Ash is feeling any kind of spiritual remorse or not, he never asks God for help. But notice in the text, verse 15, that God gives it anyway. In verses 15 and 16 and 17, Elisha says to Joash, grab the bows and arrows. We're going to shoot an arrow out the window. Now that seems a little strange, and it doesn't certainly have any personal relevance to what you and I are going to do today. But in that time in history, countries would signal sometimes the start of war or the, the onset of hostility by publicly shooting an arrow into enemy territory. It was kind of the precursor for a shot across the bow. So if an enemy arrow came in, it was like, all right, it's on. There's, there's a rumble going on. Now, since there are no Arameans around, you see it here, there's nobody around, and he's only shooting in the general direction. Elisha says, open the window and shoot east towards Syria, which is now Syria, which is where the Arameans were. He says, take an arrow and just shoot it to the east. It's not going to land in the enemy camp. This is symbolic. So this is not for the Arameans. This is not to tell them, hey, it's about to start. This is for Joash. And look at what happens right before he does this. It's in verse 16. As Joash holds the bow, Elisha puts his hand on top of Joash's. Now, I want you to really visualize this, okay? Picture the king standing in the palace. Picture the open window to the east. He's got his bow and arrow in his hands. And, and, and Elisha, who's about 90 or more at this age, puts his, his wrinkled wobbly, shaky hands on top of the kings, and he guides the direction of the bow and arrow. Try to, try to get that mental picture right now of, of what's going on. Now, Elisha's not doing this because Joash doesn't know how to shoot an arrow. He's not doing it because Joash doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's doing it because there's a not-so-subtle message here. Joash has been self-sufficient and Joash has done what he thinks is right, and it has not gone well, personally or nationally. Now, he can continue in the failure, or he can learn to trust the Lord. How often do we continue in what is not spiritually fruitful instead of yielding and depending on the Lord? When you look at your life, do you see yourself, be very, very self-analytical here. When you look at your life, do you see patterns and habits that never produce spiritual results? Or if they do, the fruit is so small and so unripe and so sour that, it, that it's almost worse than not having any fruit. Do, do you see patterns? Do you see trends? Do you see habits in your life that aren't producing fruit? And then we wonder why we're not growing spiritually. We wonder why there's not direction from the Lord. We wonder why things aren't settled and unified and why there's conflict in our family. We wonder why we're not being blessed. We wonder why we're not content. And yet we haven't been willing to yield ourselves to the Lord. Spiritual principle number two. Spiritual fruit 
Spiritual fruit is the byproduct of complete trust, surrender, and holy faithfulness. If we want spiritual fruit in our life, the only way that's going to happen is through complete trust, surrender, and holy faithfulness to God. Why does Elisha put his hands on Joash's hands? He does that because he wants to teach him, look, you've been doing it wrong. And I want to show you before I die how you should live and how you should rule. If Joash had already been doing that, if he had been serving the Lord and honoring the Lord, Elisha wouldn't need to be there. Elisha wouldn't have to say, nope, you're doing it wrong. Let me put my hands on top of yours. Like when you're a father and you have a little child and the child's trying to do something, you just come along and you grab their little hands. You say, do it like this. Like when they're trying to put the little shapes. Uh, it's been a long time since my kids have done this. The little shapes in the thing, which is really frustrating for a two-year-old, but they have to learn. The square goes in the square, and the circle goes in the circle, and they kind of bang it around, and you just take their hand and say, no, the circle goes in there. That's what he's doing with the king of Israel. Joash, hold on, hold on. Like this, point it like this toward the east. This is what it means to trust the Lord. This is how you do it. Because at this point, Josh is uncertain. Elisha's going to leave. It's going to be six decades before any other prophet of the Lord comes along. There's no spiritual climate in the nation. And Joash, for some reason, comes to Elisha and starts weeping that he's about to leave. So Elisha senses an opportunity. He says, look, your life doesn't make any sense. This nation doesn't make any sense. If you have personal and spiritual uncertainty in your life, it is an indication that you are not seeking the Lord's direction because when we call on the name of the Lord, what does he do? He answers. The Bible says that if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord who gives it liberally. But don't ask going, I don't know, Lord. You have to ask confidently, not wavering like the waves of the ocean because when we do that, it says God will give us wisdom beyond what we understand. If you're uncertain if you're unwise, if you can't figure it out, if you keep saying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but you're not really saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. That is an indication that fruit is not growing and your life is in the wrong hands. Because when the Lord has his hand on you, listen now, church, when the Lord has his hand on you, when the Lord has his hand on the church, he will be specific and he will bless. To his credit, Joash, look at the text. He doesn't jerk his hand away. He lets the prophet show him how to shoot the arrow toward Aram. And notice that when he does that, look at verse 17, that when he does that, the Lord gives very specific details about the battle. He says, you will defeat the Arameans. You will win at the town of Aphek. And you will defeat them until they are destroyed. There is no ambiguity. There is no uncertainty. He says, I will give you victory. Listen, if the Lord is willing to give us victory over sin because of Christ, if the Lord is willing to declare us to be more than conquerors through Christ and give us his Holy Spirit to, to enable that to happen, why would we question whether he is willing and able to give us victory over the spiritual trials that we face and to give us victory and lead us every single day. If he can do that table, can't he help your life? 
Can he give you certainty and confidence and blessing? But that requires daily trust. That requires daily surrender. It requires daily faithfulness. An unwavering spiritual consistency in our lives that too often becomes shaky. But if we can develop spiritual consistency in our lives, then we will now gain an increased motivation that God is going to have so many more blessings than we can possibly understand. And that's illustrated as we come to the close. Look at verses 18 and 19. Because here it gets a little odd. He comes crying. He asks for help. Not really, but in his own roundabout way. Elisha says, I'm going to give you victory. God's going to give victory over the Arameans. Take the arrow, shoot it to the east. Holds his hand. Does that. Now Elisha says, all right, one more thing. One more thing. I want you to take the arrows. Notice the plural. I want you to take the arrows, and I want you to strike the ground. Now, on first read, that, that makes it seem like he's saying the, take the arrows and, and just kind of beat the ground like that. But that doesn't really make sense. One, because it would break the arrows, and another because he's just had this parallel of shooting the arrow out the window. So when we look deeper into the text, it really means that he shot the arrows into the ground. So shoot the arrow out the window towards Syria, toward the enemy to the east, because God's going to give you victory over that. Now, here's the next thing you need to do, Joash. You need to take the arrows, plural, and you need to strike the ground with them. Now, what's Joash to think here? Let's try to get inside his mind for a minute. Should he shoot more than one? If so, how many? He's been told that shooting the arrow east is a sign of victory, that God's going to give them victory over the Arameans. So should he shoot all the arrows he has, or should he just shoot some of them? It might be a little confusing at first, but the bottom line is, why leave any arrows in the quiver? Why leave anything there? Why not just shoot all of them? Because see, what God's doing here is he's testing the heart and the willingness of Joash to trust the Lord. When he had clear instruction, listen, this is important for our lives. When he had clear instruction and Elisha's hand was on top of his, it was easy to know. But now that he's on his own and he has less specific and he literally doesn't have his hand being held, what's he supposed to do? This is what we face every day. And what struck me as I've studied this passage is, is that we're kind of a walking dichotomy. We want unmistakable, specific guidance from the Lord. How many times, don't raise your hands, how many times have you said, boy, I wish I had some handwriting on the wall today. I wish God would be abundantly clear with me today on what he wants. But when God gives it, 66 books of his word, when he gives it, we question him. We negotiate a little bit. Well, Lord, that's uncomfortable. You're leading me that direction? Well, I don't really think I like that. That's going to stretch my faith. How many know what I'm talking about right here? It's truth, right? Oh, Lord, if you would just give me clarity on what to do, I, my, my life will be yours. How many times we pray that? I, oh, I'll give you anything. If you just give me an answer on this. And then God goes, I don't like that answer. That was the answer I wanted. I wanted something to, So you wanted your way. Well, yeah, I wanted you to bless my way. We want specificity from God, but we don't always like it because we want autonomy. 
we don't want the Lord to tell us everything to do. And when he does, we may feel a little spiritually claustrophobic and restricted. So look back at Joash. He's got the word of the Lord. He has the potential of even more blessing. He has at least six arrows. He's only shot one. That one arrow has indicated sure victory. And now the Lord's prophet is saying, you got more arrows, shoot them into the ground. How many would you shoot? What's the measure of your faith and my faith? Look at back at the text one more time. It says, Then he said, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times. Notice the last two words there in that verse. And stopped. It wasn't that he was uncertain. It wasn't, it was like, I don't know, three, four, five. I'm kind of unclear here. That word, those words, and stopped, signify will. They signify defiance. So he kind of half-heartedly takes the arrow out, shoots one into the ground. Okay, another, because he said arrows. So there's a second. I'm probably good, but you know what? I'll cover my bases. Let's shoot one more. Boom, three. All right, I'm done. He's half-hearted. He wants God's leading and God's help, but he doesn't go all the way with it. And the Lord was willing to do so much more, but instead of living in God's plan, Joash regresses back to self-sufficiency. I read a pastor who wrote, the unfaithfulness of man hinders the goodness of God. God said, you can defeat the Arameans to the uttermost. You can wipe them off the face of the earth. In fact, there will be no record of the Arameans anymore. I'm willing to do that. But because you've only fired three arrows, you should have fired at least five, six, I don't know how many he had. You should have just emptied the quiver. But, but because you only fired three and you thought that was enough and you stopped, here's the thing. I'll give you three victories over the Arameans, but then they're going to come back and cause problems. Here's the teaching for us. The Lord is willing to do so much more. The Lord is willing to abundantly bless us and give us victory after victory after victory if we will trust him implicitly and walk in his leading. I believe with all my heart that God is looking down. Let's just talk about our nation. Let's just talk about the Christian church in America, evangelicalism, believers. I believe God is looking down on this nation and I believe he's given us an opportunity. But I think he is waiting for his children to have bold, bold, bold faith. To have confident faith to have a strong witness, to not be hesitant, not be uncertain, not be shy, not be insecure. I think he wants a bold, confident, sure faith from his children. And if we don't fully believe that or we believe we're going to fall back uh, under our own control, not only are we going to miss the experience of his blessing, but we're going to find ourselves right back in the same problem probably blaming the Lord for not helping us. God is waiting 
for you and me as believers. I'm done. To, to, to be bold in our faith. To empty the quiver to say, I got 10 arrows. I'm shooting 10 arrows. I wish I had 12. But I'm emptying the arsenal. Lord, I'm putting myself in your hand. And I want to be bold and confident for you. I believe he's asking the same thing of this church. Bold confident faith that is certain, that stretches us, where God puts us out in the community and he says, now it's time, I'm going to plant you. Now it's time for you to get out and tell people about me. Now it's time to minister to people and disciple people and help people. See, Joash had the opportunity. He already had the word of the Lord saying, I'm going to give you victory. It's all yours. Now empty the, empty the quiver. But Joash says, no, I don't want to do that. And he falls short. Because he didn't have his life in the right hands. He could have been a powerful spiritual influence and led the nation in revival. But instead he shirked his responsibility and he tried to get someone else to do what he should be doing. Parents, that's our job, training our children. We can look to somebody else to do the responsibility, but it's on us. Joash could have been fruitful for the Lord. He could have been an influence to people spiritually throughout the nation. He had shown, been shown and guided by Elisha, but, but that was the extent of his confidence. As soon as Elisha took his hands off, as soon as it wasn't crystal clear and it required faith, he, he, he shirked away from it. He could have had bold faith. He could have been blessed in so many ways, but instead he was half-hearted and he missed out on all the Lord wanted to do. If someone was to come along in 20 or 30 years and read our passage and our verses, what would their conclusion be about our lives? How many arrows would we shoot into the ground? If the quiver's full this morning, why not empty it in faith to the Lord and say, God, I'm in your hands. Strength and power and blessing, it only comes from you. See, faith doesn't hold back. Faith fires all the arrows into the ground and says, Lord, I'm ready to be used. Lord, do a mighty work for your praise and your glory. You and I are going to need that kind of strong faith to influence people for Christ and to stand strong in this very, very confused time that we live in. If we don't have bold faith, we're going to get pulled in we're going to get sucked into culture, and it's going to eat us alive. But if we stand for the Lord, and we plant our feet, and we fire the arrows of victory, and we say, God, use me. God, use me. God, use me for you. That's when God will work.